Hey guys, Jules here. So before we begin our little episode today on Flannery O'Connor, I wanted to share with you guys something that I actually found. It's an audio recording of Flannery giving a talk in one of her most famous speeches about the Christ-haunted South. Almost anything you affirm on the subject of Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. I'm sure some poll taker could come along and get up a table to prove that the South doesn't believe anything at all. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it's quite safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. That's her, folks. The one and the only Flannery O'Connor. This is the story of Flannery O'Connor and the Christ-haunted South. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, I entered into today's episode (laughs) about Flannery O'Connor with a whole lot of skepticism. Because I have always, ever since my college years, I've always struggled reading Flannery O'Connor. And it's ironic, of course, because I have a podcast which is inspired by something Flannery once wrote. By the way, Mystery Through Manners comes from a book, Mystery and Manners, which is a collection of essays which were published after Flannery's death. But here's the question, of course, that you guys are wondering that I am still asking myself. How was I convinced? How was I able to finally understand just the marvels and really the genius of this person, Flannery O'Connor? So let's begin our story and really my own journey to acceptance in the great state of Georgia. I am Cody Shelley. And Cody has what many of you adoring Flannery fans might believe to be one of the coolest jobs on the planet. Uh, And I am the Flannery O'Connor Childhood Home Foundation Manager. I reached out to Cody because I wanted to learn more about this mysterious icon in Catholic literary and really Southern literary circles. So let's jump right in. Flannery O'Connor is born here in Savannah, Georgia on Lafayette Square at 207 East Charlton Street, uh, March 25th, 1925. Flannery was born to Irish Catholic parents Regina Klein, who was one of 16 and from the oldest Catholic family in Milledgeville, Georgia, and her dad, Edward O'Connor, one of eight and from the great city of Savannah. And from all accounts, Flannery adored her family with a special love for her dad. Just a good all-around fella from all accounts. He's also a really well-known orator of the time. He writes his own speeches for the American Legion here in Savannah as a World War I veteran and is really well-known for those speeches. So we really see him cultivating Flannery's creative side when she's a little girl, and he has a a similar creative side. Flannery went to primary school at St. Vincent's, which is still in Savannah today. 
And what I found most interesting, perhaps, after talking to Cody was the history of Catholicism in Savannah, a history which dates all the way back to the 18th century. Irish Catholics inhabited this little corner of the Southern world and, as a result, helped form and shape the culture even today. And because of this rich Catholic culture, Catholicism was really woven into the very fabric of Flannery's life from her earliest years. So she's not only going to Mass every morning of her life as a child, she's going to Catholic school, she's playing with the little girls from Catholic school, she's sleeping under this incredible view of what is already a profoundly important symbol of a community that is unique to this time and place. She's Well, she's also going to three-hour Latin Mass on Sundays because by six years old she decided that the Sunday school teachers were talking down to her. Um, She's such a pistol. Uh, she's just this bubble. She's so ensconced in this bubble. It really is her frame of reference. And it, this faith provides the structure and the outer life that she needs to really be able to look in and become the person that she is. Flannery's early childhood life was filled with faith and joy. <laughs> and by all accounts, her family thrived in Savannah, thanks in part to the generosity of their benefactor, a woman we know as Cousin Katie. But then when Flannery was just 14 years old, tragedy struck her world. Uh, when Flannery is 14, her daddy's diagnosed with lupus, and this is a real seminal moment for her. The family winds up in Milledgeville, where mom's whole family support system is, and this is where he convalesces and passes away when Flannery's only 15. Flannery stays in Milledgeville with her mom and her extended family and attends college in town at the Georgia College for Women. While in school, she begins to uncover her talent for writing, and in particular, her love of what she would call social cartoons. By the way, on our website, there's a book of Flannery's cartoons, which are just fabulous. Please check that out. (laughs) But as a result of this love, she decides to pursue journalism and finds herself at the University of Iowa for a master's program. But while she was there, Flannery decided to pursue another kind of writing (laughs) through the up-and-coming Iowa Writers Workshop. It was here that her love of fiction writing really took shape, and Flannery received her master's at the ripe old age of 22. After this time, O'Connor went to New York, lived among some of the finest writers and literary minds in the country. But just as her works began to flourish and her reputation began to garnish favor, even among a lot of atheists, intellectuals, Flannery started experiencing debilitating physical symptoms. And after undergoing various tests, her worst fears were confirmed. She suffered from lupus, which was uh, also her father had the same disease. And uh, it's an autoimmune disorder where basically the body can't tell itself from other things that are bad and ends up attacking itself, and it's very debilitating. This man deserves an introduction, by the way. This is Brian Collier. He runs one of the most popular Flannery O'Connor websites in the world called Comforts of Home. Now, as Brian mentioned, Lupus forced O'Connor back to her home state of Georgia, where she would spend the rest of her life. The beginning of the 60s, and at the start of 1964, she has a big surgery. 
just a big surgery that's a bad idea and this turns into a terrible downward spiral. She spends the whole summer in the hospital with her typewriter hidden under her bed, writing and writing and writing and quietly slips into a coma at the end of 19, or at the end of July in 1964, she slips into a coma and then dies of kidney failure at the beginning of August in 1964. She's only 39. Lupus forced O'Connor back to her home state of Georgia. But what was originally seen as a curse for Flannery turned into a rather extraordinary gift. Because being back in her home state allowed O'Connor to be amongst some of the greatest Southern writers of her era. And in doing so, Flannery herself embraced the literary genre, which had greatly shaped her earliest years of writing, Southern Gothic. Here's Brian again. Southern Gothic, as a, as a term describing literature, uh, originally that was an insult. It, uh, the, the term came about when I, I, I think the critics had a hard time dealing with uh, writers like Faulkner and Caldwell and their peculiarly southern aspects of storytelling. So they sort of focused on the gothic elements in the stories and came up with that term to classify them. But it, it really was derogatory. It wasn't complimentary at all. But leave it to a woman like Flannery to resurrect and redeem the meaning of this genre. You know, she's coming out at a time when Southern writers were really sort of looked down upon as, you know, the rednecks and the, the oh gosh, they're the people who had this problem with, with slavery and, and all these other things. And that really people from the South were, were not well-liked or well-respected and were kind of viewed as anti-intellectual. And then you've got someone who brings this new um, worldview to the literary scene, and, and, and she wasn't the first person to do it by any stretch, but she was working in the same path as Faulkner, as Welty, um, and you see people picking up on this and going, hey, this is worth looking at and this is good, but she doesn't succumb to any of the anti-intellectual problems. She doesn't succumb to the um, tirade about the repression of the Yankees and stepping on the necks of the Southerners or anything like that. She just tells the story, and I, I think that's made her accessible to a broader audience than some of the, the more stereotypically Southern writers. And this is particularly evident in the way in which Flannery wrote of the supernatural. O'Connor leveraged the Gothic literary lexicon to get her point across. Um, things like elements of the supernatural, which in her case is not, you know, ghosts haunting the mansion, but more of the spiritual themes. Uh, and, and other people have referred to her being in the Christ-haunted South, and I think that's a perfect example of that supernatural element. Now let's stop here for a moment before we get too ahead of ourselves, because today's episode isn't so much about the literary genius of Flannery, although that will certainly become evident as this episode plays out, but the real genius of Flannery's writings is within the context of this Christ-haunted South. Her real genius is, in fact, a spiritual one, but not quite in the way you would think. You, you, you're reading it and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, that tree is bleeding and and this this 
this thing is walking on water or this um, person has to make this sacrifice or, um, you know, it, it, these, these details are part of the story. They're integral. If you take them out, the story doesn't work anymore. This weaving of Catholicism through the texts in subtle and beautiful ways isn't simply a way of evangelizing or apologizing to the readers. This technique also gives the reader a glimpse into Flannery's own life and how Catholicism in particular shaped her worldview. Here's Nick Rapatrizoni again, who we heard from in the last episode. Um, Flannery O'Connor knows that Christianity is messy um, it is complicated. Uh, it's also for her and for other Catholics, you know, sort of the, the most essential thing of existence, the idea of redemption and, and resurrection. And she puts all of these things together. Um, I think people sometimes in fiction want to find answers that they already knew. Uh, Flannery O'Connor forces us to kind of restart. Now, this messiness of Catholicism was particularly useful for Flannery herself, who, as you may recall, was enduring immense suffering through her own debilitating illness. But according to Dr. Ralph Wood, who you also heard from in the last episode, her portrayal of her faith would be the same with or without her physical suffering. It's very important to see that she would have written as she wrote had she not been ill. Now, I think her illness intensified her vision and her fiction because it made her see the way in which the world's suffering is not only spiritual, though primarily spiritual, but also physical. O'Connor was infamous for introducing the reader to the iconography of her faith throughout her fiction. You know, she would write about bleeding trees and creatures walking on water and other just veiled depictions of redemption, suffering, and grace. And honestly, this all seems well and good. A true artist, particularly within the written word, knows how to employ creative tools to get her point across without kind of blatantly attempting to evangelize. And yet, why is it that so many people, uh, myself included, (laughs) still can't seem to stomach Flannery's writings. Here's Dr. Wood again. So let's begin with the most offensive thing about Flannery O'Connor. That is her deployment of the grotesque. This, of course, requires a little bit of definition. First of all, to simply say, the human condition is grotesque. (laughs) We are radically fallen creatures. We have twisted and perverted the good gifts of God into things that are the very means of, of death, of perversion. And for us to turn our eyes away from those things is to cheapen the gospel, because it's the gospel that redeems precisely the most horrible and not those things that are just not very nice. And a part of what makes us so uncomfortable with Flannery is that this use of the grotesque reminds us of our very fallenness. We can't escape this reality in Flannery. And as it turns out, we can't escape this reality in the Gospels either. For her, the Gospel is grotesque. That's hard for us to get hold of. We think only evil is grotesque. But for her, the gospel is grotesque. The cross is the single most horrible event in the world's history. It is a supreme, brutal ugliness 
but which, of course, the world, Christians speak of as Good Friday, because there God turns our worst into his best. And that means that the gospel is going to be entail a grotesque transformation of us. Which brings me to perhaps the most unsettling and most important element of Flannery's work. There's something about her that when you read it, you can't help but feel a little bit put off. (laughs) It's an understatement. And I think it begins with this deployment of the grotesque, but it's also illustrated in the characters themselves. Here's Susan, who we heard from in the last episode from The Well-Read Mom. After reading everything that I've, you know, had to read for school, she was almost like this fresh breath of air for me because sometimes when I would read other literature and nothing else really comes to mind, but, you know, you would be like, well, I'm not like that. These saintly perfect characters are not, you know, like me. Um, And, and I know that's, that's more so literature from when I was younger, but she didn't have these perfect characters. She was a realist. She could see kind of psychologically into the darkness of people. And she brought that out, out into the forefront. There's something about this realism that is unsettling. But, you know, maybe that's the point. <laughs> Here's Dr. Wood again. Readers, I think, are put off from her fiction in part because They see too much of themselves in it and don't want to face what they see. This uncanny ability to show us a bit of ourselves in our ugliest and often most grotesque state is at the heart of Flannery's genius. We hate reading her and love reading her all at the same time. Flannery was able, just with her wit and her her superb writing abilities, she could create something new, something shocking something that provoked deep questions within us, um, within all of her readers, secular or Catholic, whatever. Um, She could provoke these questions and make us come to judgment and come to conclusions on our own um, without this ulterior motive of evangelization. This is Flannery reading perhaps her most famous work, A Good Man is Hard to Find. The name of this is a good man's hard time. The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was seizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting on the edge of his tech chair at the table, bent over the orange sports section of the journal. Now look here, Bailey, she said. See here, read this. In perhaps her most well-known work, A Good Man is Hard to Find, Flannery leaves us feeling no better than the central bad guy, a serial killer who at the end of the story forces each of us to confront our own evils, our own sins. This confrontation is messy and it's hard, but what I've learned in this process and perhaps what I'll take with me most from forcing myself to reckon with Flannery is that it's worth it. It is every bit worth it. We lost Flannery O'Connor at the young age of 39. We've had some Catholic authors rise to critical acclaim since. Deacon Ron Hansen is a wonderful example. Walker Percy, of course. And there's many poets and writers in creative nonfiction as well who have touched our hearts. But no one, 
no one has seemed to have the sprawling influence as Flannery since her tragic death in 1964. Which brings me to a very difficult question, and and probably the question that set off this whole series. What happened to the state of American Catholic fiction, the American Catholic literary world, since Flannery's death? Has there been, and will there ever be, a new Flannery O'Connor? Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Many thanks to my sweet husband, Ryan, for his continued help and guidance. Thank you to Sean Garrison again for the opening music and to the band The Mosleys for their music in this episode as well. They are a wonderful Catholic couple from Georgia, so it seemed appropriate to use their music. I can't stress enough how much you need to check out their website. (laughs) Information about all of our interviewees can again be found on our website, mysterymannerspodcast.com including information about the wonderful work of Flannery O'Connor's childhood home and pictures from this home. At the end of this episode, there is a bonus section from Cody's interview where she describes the work of the foundation, so please keep listening if you want to know more. And thank you to the listeners for so graciously spreading the word about our humble little podcast. God bless you, and we'll see you next episode. Foundation began in 1989 with a group of English professors here in Savannah who found out that Flannery's childhood home was going to be up for sale. So as a labor of love, they purchased the house, established the foundation, and began an 18-year restoration process. We're able to pull off a lot with just um, a great board of directors and some wonderful volunteers. We have a spring and fall lecture series that bring in both local, regional, well, really local, regional, and national um, writers, speakers about a range of topics. We have poets, we have historians, novelists, all kinds of great folks. And frequently, you know, it ties directly into Flannery. A lot of the time it just has to do with Southern Gothic writing, with writing in general, with architecture or history. So those are really great. And they're all free and open to the public. We do eight a year. And and we also have a memorial lecture series called the Ursary Memorial Lecture Series that is endowed by a fabulous Georgia family in memory of a pair of brothers who were dedicated to all things Southern, much like Flannery. And uh, with that, we do sort of a landmark lecture every year with someone really notable. Uh, And we have had some really fantastic authors come for that series. We do it once a year. We've had Pulitzer Prize winners. We've had uh, it started with Michael Cunningham. He was our first in 2008, but we've had Robert Olin Butler, Roxane Gay, Anne Hood. This year we have Charles Frazier, the author of Cold Mountain, coming um, in November. Yes, 
it's very, very cool. So we're doing a conversation format uh, that'll be moderated by a wonderful uh, local professor. So that's something that we're able to offer off-site in partnership with um, a local church, Trinity, a historic church here in Savannah. Trinity Methodist gives us their space. And uh, it's a beautiful historic church. And we're able to do that lecture in partnership with them, free and open to the public every year. And then we also do a really fabulous Flannery birthday party every spring. And this is really our big open family event that's uh, very much a party. It has a parade, there's cake and tea and coffee, there's chicken poop bingo for the kids, dressing up, doing coloring, uh, face painting and coloring activities. Uh, but it's also paired with local author day and an art show with a fabulous local artist that does a lot of great work for us and loves Flannery. So it's a really fun, eclectic day in the square where everyone dresses up in their best vintage fare. And uh, we have a really great time. And that's become uh, quite the sensation every spring for Flannery's birthday. So we typically do it the last Sunday of March. She's born March 25th. Um, we have to kind of watch out for Easter, of course. So occasionally it gets bumped a little bit, but it, last year we were able to have it on uh, her birthday itself. It was great this last year.